0: we uh um pastor sarah and i decided to, and on an experiment today so we uh on this anniversary sunday um given the subject i don't even know the reasons why we were actually talking like That's why do we,
1: why did we decide to do this we thought not, it would be fun yeah we
0: thought it'd be fun so we're going to teach together so we'll see how this goes i'm really excited about it um i am too yeah sarah has a small like hook that she's allowed to access just to like pull me off the stage if it's going too much And uh, I may just walk out if she's killing it. So uh, anyway, we're really excited, uh, again, if you're new with us, to be with us today. And um, this is like a a very infamous day in the life of the church, which we're going to uh, talk about in a minute. But I believe you are going to read the text.
1: Yes. So as Corey mentioned, today is the birthday of the church. So around the world, today is Pentecost. Around the world, churches are celebrating the day that God's spirit was poured out and the church was born. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, the beginning part of this story, and then we'll unpack it um, after that. So um, should we stand again for the reading of the word? Stand again for the reading of the word from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
0: So I want to give a little background. Jesus has restored... um, Let me back up. Jesus has spent his, uh, his time announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. To define a couple terms really briefly, this is a a term if you've been around our church even for like a week, you've heard at least six times in every sermon. The reason why is because Jesus spends all his time talking about it. When he's not talking about it, he's kind of still talking about it. He's giving a frame. The kingdom of God, again, a, a really simple way to think about it, If you're brand new to biblical language or this feels really archaic, because it is, it's an ancient word we don't use very often anymore. It's the place or the dome where God is king, kingdom. That's like just a really simple way. This is where everything is in its right place. And this is what this small tribe of Israelites have been waiting for. The whole story of the scripture begins in the beginning of Genesis, begins with God making people in his image. And it's the story then of God separating light from dark. And as some rabbis uh, talk about, is the whole rest of the scriptures is basically that story of God separating light from dark. Because a God being a God of love lays, before, a ch- lays these, before these first people a choice to choose between life and death. Right? This is our story. And so the story in Genesis three of Adam and Eve. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus or or a Christian, you're, you're vaguely familiar with some of these stories, or for you myths or legends of of what it really looks like. These were poetic accounts to make sense of what uh, of who we are and what is most true. As one writer puts it, the story of Adam and Eve um, is is continues to just be true. We continue to choose death instead of life. And and so there's carnage and wreckage and the whole Jewish story is then um, them wrestling with their calling to be a blessing to the world. In Genesis 12, these Israelites, these Jewish people were called to be a blessing. God called a tribe out, not because they were like inherently special, uh, just for their own sake. He calls them out. He blesses them in order to be a blessing to the world. And much of the story of the scriptures of these first people wrestling with that call. And in the midst of that, there's all these prophecies, these promises, um, these aches that God's going to send, like, his son. And there's confusing language, the son of man, or it's a person that's going to be elevated to, like, God's status. There's all of this shelf life in, the, in Jewish thought throughout the whole Old Testament, the first half of the scriptures which is like crying out, someone's going to reveal the full nature of God and begin to rule and reign, to be like king overall. The Jews have wanted a, a king. They wanted an earthly king, and God wanted just to lead them, and that was like mistake number 632. There's just constantly these like missteps, and these prophets will come in and warn these people, hey, you, you got all these worship gatherings down, but you're not caring for the poor and the most vulnerable you're doing all of this religiosity. You're, 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 you say you're expanding your kingdom, but you're, you're missing the mark and not being faithful to me and what it is to love and bless. And, and I don't know if anyone in this room has ever felt a tension of what you feel called to be and fallen short of that. You know the whole story of the Old Testament. That's the story. If you've ever had, like I said, I was called to more. Be a blessing to the world to use my gifts and create and you've fallen short. And so this... Is the story that when Jesus enters into the scene, he starts saying things. He starts like quoting these promises and prophecies in the Old Testament of like, basically, I am the man. I am the one you've been waiting for. It literally is a verse in the scripture. I love to quote it I am the man. Unrelated to Jesus, but it's a life verse if you just want to put that at the end of your email. Oh, what well, verse really moves you? I am the man. John, whatever that is. He's the one. He's the one who's going to put it all back together. He's the one who's the king. And if you're familiar even a little bit with the scriptures, you know that these first Christians, they, they have a, as they begin to follow him, these Jews who begin to follow him and believe he's the Messiah, they think he's going to come and, like, overthrow Rome. They think he's going to come and, and have an insurgency. Some of them, there are already all of these different Jewish sects that, that wanted to take back, you know, Rome for God, to make Rome great again, to... And, and that wasn't what was happening at all. Jesus had something else. They had missed something in the scriptures. And so then when we get to the account of Acts, beginning of Acts, the disciples are about to see Jesus ascend. This is prophesied in the book of Daniel that, like, this son of man, this Messiah will take his place on the throne. He restores God's kingdom over the world. And he calls Israel to follow him. And he's enthroned as king through his death and through his resurrection. And he says, look, all that you have seen. And these disciples who did believe, right? Because some doubted that he had raised from the dead. So if you're here and you're doubting all of this, you're in good company. The Bible has a lot to say for you too. But some believe that he, he really was who he said he was. And so he fulfills this deep and powerful prophetic hope. He fulfills these key hopes of the Old Testament that God's presence will come and take residence in a new temple and transform people's hearts. So Jesus says, when this happens, the Spirit, there's going to be this moment that the Spirit will empower the disciples to be his witnesses. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and to invite all of the nations under his reign. And so, this account that we just read, when the day of Pentecost came, so Pentecost is this Jewish festival that all of these Jews would have been coming into Jerusalem for anyway. So, think of hundreds of thousands, like a whole city, like doubles, triples, quadruples, sync, sync, what's five? Quintuples. I knew that. The city bloats with all of these Jewish people who are coming in to celebrate this festival, which is the 50 days after Passover. Seven sevens after the Passover feast. If you're familiar with the scripture, Passover is this day that the Jews celebrated of being liberated from Egypt the grace of God came upon them and they pulled them out of slavery. And then 50 days later, the legend goes that they are on Mount Sinai. And so Pentecost is the day that they would remember the giving of the law. This is this, this is, uh, uh, means anything for any of you. This is like a, the Ten Commandments basically mirror like a, a marriage covenant. This is a marriage covenant between God and people saying, this is how we're going to live together. And so there's a mighty rushing wind There's fire, and Moses, uh, there's actually one uh, uh, rabbinical story of like Moses' tongue was filled with fire. It's not in the scriptures. It's not like verified info, but it's something that passed down in the oral tradition. There's like, but we know that there's fire and wind. And so Moses comes, and he gives these first people who have just been saved by grace. Interesting. Pulled out of Egypt, not for anything that they were able to do. And then he says, this is how we're going to live together. This is what it means for us to reside together. There's a whole bunch of people, though, who didn't get it. And there's told there was this carnage on this day for a bunch of folks who didn't get it, 3,000 folks in particular, 3,000 people who were busy getting drunk, who were busy, like, like satisfying their own desires, not paying attention to what God was doing while Moses is up hearing from God. He comes down the mountain, he sees what's happening. We're told there's 3,000 people. So it's interesting, just a couple quick facts as we're about to read this text. You following me so far? 3,000 people, some drunk folks, wind, fire, God's presence showing up in a new way to show them what it means to live and walk in the world. That's this old story. And here we are at Acts, Jesus saying, I am the king and all the prophecy about God's gonna make his presence known in a brand new way when the Messiah comes. And God's gonna reveal the fullness of who he is. And he's gonna... Bring, him, bring himself kind of into our lives in a new way. Keep all that in your head for a quick moment. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them and came to rest on each of them. This is a frightening scene. Don't pretend like it's not. <laughs> all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Tongues, there is the word for language. Same word. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Obviously, why? Why are there Jews in the city? Because it's it Pentecost. This isn't like the creation of Pentecost. It's a festival that's been around for a while. They're there to celebrate the first fruits and remember Mount Sinai, Moses, fire, 3,000 people dead, drunk people, win fire. Let's keep going. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, Lamanites. He goes through a list of Jews from all over the world. We're going to come back to this in a minute. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, saying they've had too much wine. Peter then gets up, one of the disciples, and addresses the crowd and says, do you want to know what's happening and who Jesus is? And he gives, you got to read this sometime, just this powerful sermon quoting basically the Old Testament and all the old prophecies saying, Hey, Jewish people, the one you've been waiting for is here. The fullness of God has been revealed in Jesus. He has forgiven our sins, and he was resurrected from the dead, Kickstarting, starting One way to put it would be heaven." now coming into earth. And ever since, churches are saying for the last 2,000 years that the inbreaking of heaven is happening right here in the midst of this world. And he quotes at the end of his sermon. He talks about, uh, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is an old passage Jesus is quoting, saying, this is happening now. This is happening now. And so after all of this, after all of this, this heartfelt message, people being convicted, seeing fire, being thrown about, like not wondering what, wondering what is going on. Peter gives them clarity. Jesus has come. God has come in a new way. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom crucified both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brothers, what, will we, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent. Like, turn back. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, everything you've known has changed. Go back down into that water. There's something brand new happening. Heaven is breaking out. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number daily. It's almost like Mount Sinai is happening again. It's overlaid over the story, but it's exploding in a brand new way. And so then you know what these first disciples did? All these 3,000, they're like blown away. Oh, my gosh, everything has changed. Even if you're having a hard time tracking with all that history, this is this moment where everything has changed. Like, Like the beginning of God making everything new has started. And you know what they did? They devoted themselves to a whole bunch of things. They devoted themselves.
1: All right, continuing on in the text, Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in response to what these folks are experiencing at Pentecost, they devote themselves to this whole new way of life. They completely reorient How they're used to doing things and they devote themselves to God and to one another. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna be looking at the specific things that they devote themselves to to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to generosity, to hospitality. But I wanna look today at their devotion in general. The fact that in response to what they just experienced on Pentecost, they devote themselves to God, to his kingdom, and to his people. So I wanna talk about what that means. And to do that, I want to give us a framework to understand their devotion and kind of where it fits into what's happening in a larger scale. So when I look at the story of Pentecost, and when I look at, honestly, what what happens sometimes in our home groups, or when I look at what's happening in my kids as they learn how to follow Jesus, I see three spiritual dynamics at play And these, if I had to kind of put my finger on what these things are, I think these are like three key ingredients in any kind of lasting spiritual transformation. And they are encounter, belief, and praxis. And so in this passage, the encounter is obvious. The Holy Spirit is poured out. There's this miraculous thing happening where people can understand the gospel in their own language. They have an encounter with God, an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And then the belief part, this is where Peter gets up and interprets their experience and helps them to understand the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king and his kingdom is at hand. So they have an encounter. They believe something about Jesus and his kingdom. But then it's this third piece, the praxis piece that I want to focus on today. This is what gets really interesting. So spiritual praxis, I would say is what happens when we begin to exercise faith in what we believe. We exercise faith in what we believe. So we often use those two words interchangeably, belief and faith. They're actually different. They're related, but they're different. So here's a story that's a kind of a famous story that illustrates the difference between belief and faith. So there was a famous um, stuntman or kind of daredevil from the 1800s named Charles Blondin. And the story goes that in 1860, he strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls from the American side to the Canadian side. And the crowds gathered, he was famous already, so you know, he drew like, this huge crowd to watch him try to walk this tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he did it, he walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And the crowd is just going crazy, and he gets down off the tightrope and he asks the crowds, do you believe I can do that again? this time pushing a wheelbarrow. And they're like, yeah, you can do you can do it, you can do anything. They're like cheering him on. So he goes and he gets back up there and he pushes a wheelbarrow all the way across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And then he gets down on the other side and the crowd is going nuts again and he says, do you believe I can do it a third time, this time with 150 pounds in this wheelbarrow? And they're like, Yes, you can do anything. You're the best tightrope walker in the world. We believe you can do this. And so he says, can I get a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? And it's crickets. Nobody gets in the wheelbarrow. That's the difference between belief and faith. Belief is cognitive. I believe you can push this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls with 150 pounds in it. Faith is belief accompanied by action. I believe that and I'm gonna get in the wheelbarrow. That's the difference between belief and faith. And so spiritual praxis is what happens when we get in the wheelbarrow, when we allow the truth and the power of the gospel to change not just our feelings and our emotions, not just our ideas about God, but to change our very way of life. It's when we get in the wheelbarrow and that is what's happening in Acts two. They have this encounter with God They come to a belief that Jesus is the Messiah and his kingdom is at hand. And then this community gets in the wheelbarrow together and they reorient their entire way of life around this reality that they've just come to believe. That is what's happening at Pentecost. It's changing everything, their emotions, their ideas, and their way of life. And that piece, this praxis piece, their devotion to this new way of life This is so important. This is so key because the kingdom of God is not just an alternate state of mind. The kingdom of God is not just some enlightened spiritual state that we get to in our minds. The kingdom of God is an embodied reality that takes root in communities made up of flesh and blood. And so the kingdom of God without praxis, without human bodies made up of flesh and blood living the life of heaven here on earth the kingdom of God, the growth of that kingdom is going to be stunted. Because the kingdom of God doesn't exist in the realm of ideas. The kingdom of God exists in the realm of human communities here on earth. And so we need people who are living out the life of heaven in order for the kingdom of God to grow and expand. And so without the praxis of the early church, without their devotion to God and his kingdom and to this whole new way of life, without their devotion to things like learning about Jesus and about the Old Testament scriptures, their devotion to prayer and an ongoing encounter with God, their devotion to one another in the form of radical generosity and hospitality, without this praxis, would we even know about them? In a very real way, like would this church even have been a church Or would we even know the gospel? I mean, in one way, would the church have even grown and taken root? I know that if they had failed, God would have made another plan. But in a very real way, it was their praxis after Pentecost, their devotion to this way of life that enables the kingdom of God to take root and the church to be born. So just think about what if. What if they hadn't? So, what if these, you know, three thousand people, many of them are not from Jerusalem. What if they just go home to their home countries immediately, and Peter's sermon is the only thing they've ever heard about Jesus? Or what if they want to stay and devote themselves to learning more, but nobody opened up their homes to make that possible? Or what if they never interacted with each other, and they had three thousand individual interpretations about what just happened? Or what if they never learned to love one another? Later on in the book of Acts, we see this community encounter some conflict. What if they never broke bread together and learned to love one another and their conflict just destroyed the community? I am so glad that this early church devoted themselves to God and his kingdom and one another. They got in the wheelbarrow together. And so if they hadn't, if Their experience at Pentecost was just this encounter and a new set of beliefs. There was no praxis. I think it would have been a flash in the pan, one-time, random religious experience instead of the birth of a transformative new work of God. And so when I think about that and then I turn the light on us for a minute, it makes me wonder, do we miss transformative new works of God in our midst because we are weak in praxis? The Western church, 21st century Western church, we kind of like to park it in the belief category. We love to think about God. We love to talk about God. But we hesitate to get in the wheelbarrow. And does that stunt the growth of the kingdom of God in our day? I think it might. And I think we can learn something from the early church and from their devotion to God and to one another and to this way of life. So the main thing, as I've been thinking about what is their devotion like, why, what is this? The main thing I've been struck by is the way that their devotion to God, to one another, to the kingdom, it reflects evidence of a very clear ordering of their priorities. So the things that might seem kind of radical to us, selling houses and possessions and fields, giving to anyone as they had need kind of this fanatical obsession with daily corporate spiritual practices, these things that might seem radical to us, they're actually just the obvious choice when Jesus and his kingdom has suddenly become the most important thing in their life. It's the natural outcome. It's the obvious choice. Their devotion to God and his kingdom flows out of a crystal clear sense that Jesus and his kingdom is now the most important thing that there is. And so we see this same kind of clarity in other stories throughout the scriptures. Our our kind of theme passage for the years, we've been talking about growing in our passion for God. From Mark 14, this woman who breaks a jar of expensive perfume for no other reason than to just bless and honor Jesus. She pours it on his head. And she's criticized by people who say, you could have done so many better things with that. It was expensive, you could have sold it. Jesus defends her choice. And what we see is that, for her, the choice was obvious. When Jesus is the most important thing, no cost is too high. And that's why in Matthew 13, God compa- Jesus compares the kingdom of God to someone who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And then when they find it, they bury it. And he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field when we know what's important, when we know the value of the thing we've discovered, the choice is clear. It's easy to get in the wheelbarrow when you know what's really important. And so to be honest, when I look at myself or when I look at the Western 21st century church, I'm not sure that we always live with that kind of clarity. I'm not sure that if you looked at our praxis, that you would say we're always devoted to Jesus and his kingdom, in some cases, I think it's more like we dabble. We're not devoted. We dabble in the things of God. Because, yes, the kingdom of God is important to us. I'm sure that we would say that it's like a treasure, but there are so many other treasures that we chase. And so rather than the central priority around which everything else in our life finds its place, it becomes one interest among many things in our lives. And so, yes, we want the kingdom of God. We love the kingdom of God. We also want comfort and happiness and security for ourselves and for our families. Yes, we want the kingdom of God. We love Jesus. We love his kingdom. But we also want to be successful and liked and approved of by the people around us. Yes, we want Jesus and his kingdom, but we also want a lot of other things and so we dabble. But the early church was so convinced after Pentecost that Jesus and his kingdom was the central thing, the only thing that they are able to get in the wheelbarrow and devote themselves to this whole new way of life. And so the invitation for us this morning is to move from dabbling in the things of God to being devoted to the things of God. And so for some of us, The reason that our praxis or our devotion is weak is because our encounter is weak and our belief is weak. And so for some of us, we need to ask God for a fresh encounter. If you're in this room and you're running on fumes of an encounter that was like a decade old, like something you experienced in high school or college, you need to ask God for a fresh encounter with his spirit. For some of us, If our belief is weak, our praxis is going to be weak. If our belief is wrong, our praxis is going to not make any sense. If we don't fundamentally understand the good news of the gospel, if you can't answer that question, why is the gospel good news? It's going to impact your praxis. And so some of us need to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to understanding what is the good news. But for others of us who would say, yes, I do have a fresh encounter with God, yes, I understand the gospel, it has to do with our priorities. We need to take an inventory of our life and say in what ways does my devotion to God and the kingdom show up in how I use my time, how I spend my money, the margins of my life, the things that I think about. We need to get in the wheelbarrow and exercise greater faith in the things that we say we believe. And so that's the invitation for us today. So over the course of the next few weeks, we are going to dive into the specific things that this community devoted themselves to. And today, we are going to look at their commitment to the practice of radical generosity.
0: So good. It reminds me. We got to tag in. All right. Reminds me of um, YouTube comments, which is a natural transition. Anyone uh, looked at YouTube comments recently? I'm sorry you're probably slightly more depressed than the average um, adult. YouTube, I mean, besides the place where, like, hell, we talk about heaven coming to earth. Like, that's the place where hell is coming to earth in YouTube comments. Can we talk about that? I mean, it's evil. Hey, but the thing I realize that what always bothers me about that, about, like, what happens in that, or, or often on Twitter, I... I I've recognized something that has bothered me for years and something in this teaching has brought it to light. And this is this. I've always get frustrated when I see people expending like energy that um, just could be spent somewhere else. (laughs) And it feels so judgmental. Anyone, Anyone feel that? You're like, who am I to say what you should spend your money on? Who am I to say that, you know, like there's like, you know, a shooting happening that happened this past week. Another one. Another one. In a country where, oh, gosh, I want to go on a rant. I'm going to pause that rant for a moment. But my gosh, but someone, like, after that happened, felt like, you know what would be a really good use of my time would be to, like, pick on somebody on YouTube for making, like, for their art that they put out, like, their music. You know what would be really good is to get really upset that, like, the new, I don't know, Mumford record has electric guitars instead of acoustic or something. Like, You know it would be really worth my time is expending all of my passion and energy and frustration built around a basketball game, which, by the way, I'm a Celtics fan and wanted to expend all of my energy and anger after last night's loss. I've realized throughout my life that the thing that frustrates me and that I've been just so worried, it has some sort of like, it's like a holier-than-thou problem I must have is my frustration when I see people expending their energy in just weak places. I'm just for a moment, I'm just going to own that I might like tick some people off or may come off that way. But if it's not just like what Andrew's thoughts are and we were to look at the godly thoughts, like scriptural like, ideas of what it means to throw yourself into something that matters, like you only have so much energy. Do you know that? I mean, literally you have, I think it was like 100 watts, like the the resting human is giving off, like literal energy. And then you have just your creativity and your insight and your wisdom and the awful things that have happened to you that God wants to make into something fresh. There is so much that you have, and we are so guilty, and I am the chief of sinners, of spending my time and money, energy in places that just don't matter. I'm not in the game. Have you ever heard the phrase, like, get in the fight? Or, like, I'm going to fight the good fight. Like, really vague things that come out at, like, graduation ceremonies. And may you fight the good fight in this broken world. You know, I've heard that 18,000 times. But a fight, you're expending a ton of energy when you're in a fight, right? When you're in a fight, anyone ever been in a fight before? In a battle? I don't mean, like, video games. I mean, like, like, fisticuffs. Fisticuffs. This is the universal sign for fisticuffs. When you're in that, you're expending so much energy. And so the question for me always is, what kind of fight are you in? What kind of fight are you in? This is my question always to the YouTube comments. My question always to the folks that, that um, I, I get the sense that there's a, uh, you have lost the plot in some sort of way. We expend of what we're called to be of what we are supposed to be about parent at a game who feels the need to yell and scream at 7-year-olds playing soccer lost the plot you missed it somewhere Folks, maybe in your life, or maybe you're one of them, you're constantly complaining and critiquing and deconstructing and beating everybody down, and no one says anything right, or no one says the right way, or no one identifies correctly with so-and-so, and and you are just there always at your moment of rest. It's actually restful for you in sport to just tear down and to stand at a distance. You probably lost the plot. See, these first followers of Jesus were talking about the word devoted. They got in the wheelbarrow because they understood the plot. And they, they, they owned it. They, they saw it. They said, if this is real and heaven's breaking out right now, then I got some things to do. I got some things to do. Like, what's the greater thing? And they could answer that question. They could answer the question. I, I was thinking about, like, phrases that have been helpful for me to, like, make sense of just my own general energy and of making sure I'm, like... Not losing the plot. I'm focused on the thing that's most important. I love to stay up really, really late. Anyone else like to stay up really, really late? Yeah, so figuring out a way to, like, this was before I had kids to actually get home. I would say things like this. This is like a friend's advice. Everyone wants to go out to the next thing, FOMO's starting to kick in. And just to say this I'm in, I'm in training right now. Like, you to your friends, and they all want to, like, go out to another spot, go out to another bar, go out to a coffee shop, and they want to stay at late and go, sorry, I can't, I'm in training right now. Or have you ever had a moment where you're saving money, and everyone wants to go out to dinner, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go out with you guys, we're, we're, we're saving money, we're going on vacation. Why do you do that? Because it's something bigger. I used to use the training thing all the time, and then finally somebody asked, like, what are you training for? And I would just say, life So I knew that would be funny, but I'm like dead serious. Why can't I go out an extra, an extra, for an extra hour? I gotta get in bed because I gotta get up early and seek the Lord for what he has for me tomorrow. Oh, well, if this is real and heaven's breaking out and, and there's mission and purpose on my life and on my family, I wanna know what it means to, to, to be the, the man that I'm supposed to be, the, the father I'm supposed to be, the, right? I can go down the list. And so talking about generosity, Well, they looked at their their finances and their resources, and they said, well, if if God is making, and this is the language that's being said here, a new temple. And the new temple isn't constructed of wood and stone. It's people. This is what's happening. If you've been following, like, the story of the text. Jesus is Messiah, and the fire has fallen where? On one person to give some law? On the creation of a new actual physical temple? No, 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 no. All the prophecy said when the Messiah will come, when the Messiah, when the Jesus will come, well, he's gonna have a new temple and his spirit will reside with his people. They missed what Joel said: the spirit will be on their hearts. So it makes sense then of why these first Christians and I was so excited to find the answer to a question I've been struggling with: these first Christians, why when they hear Jesus is Messiah, the spirits come? I now have this intimacy with God, and I'm joining God and putting everything back together. Why then would I start to, like, give of all my resources? It sounds nice, but it doesn't make sense. Unless you know Deuteronomy 14 to 15, which I know you all have memorized. But here's what it says about the temple. In Deuteronomy 14 15, we don't have enough time to get into it. But basically, this was the role of the temple was to redistribute the wealth to make sure that people who were hurting were taken care of. And the temple, for ancient thought understanding, for the Old Testament, this was the place where God resided. So you would go into the temple. Well, this is where God is. And then the priests and the people who were, like, mitigating the relationship between you and God would redistribute the resources. That's what it was. So when these first Christians are, like, smacked, or not really smacked here, more like tongue overhead with the fire of the Holy Spirit, that was a Bible joke, they all of a sudden are getting caught up in the way of Jesus. They're going, oh, my, God is here in a brand new way. I can understand God, and this is the Messiah, and this new kingdom project is breaking forth, and I have something to give my life to. There's a bigger story that's here that I get to throw myself into the renewal of the whole world. And I get to play a small part of that as a mother, father, plumber, painter, artist, and join him in that. this epic moment. Well, that means we are the temple. Well, if we are the temple, well, then what, one of the things, what, are the, what do we do at the temple? We make sure we distribute all of our money. We make sure that we, we tithe. Tithing, right? Giving your first 10% of your income. This is not about giving the first 10% of your income, by the way. Tithing is about, I'm going to hold on to 90%. You following me? Tithing is about holding on to 90% because it's all God's anyway. 100% of that's God's. So tithing is like, hey, you keep 90%. God's like, you keep 90 Can you give 10 back? It will help and heal your soul. It will help us further the mission. And so... If, the, if these first Christians are referencing Deuteronomy 14 and 15, if these first Christians are going, oh, if we are now the temple and they are hearing the voice of God and they are realizing we are going to be the place where heaven and earth meet in the people of God, we have project heaven in front of us, we are going to demonstrate and announce in providence as it is in heaven, well, then we better do what... The temple was about, which was, well, when you encounter the love of God and when you encounter people on fire for the things of God that are in tune with the universe, well, they're generous, are they not? When you know and have and are growing into the heart of God, and the, one of the central characteristics of the God of the universe is generosity, for God so gave, for God so gave his son, well, then you're going to be generous, are you not? Are you not? My wife and I, we give 10% of our income. Just, just, just give it away. Just give it right back to the church, which is a funny thing when you're, like, paid by the church. But we have to give it away. There are things that we, we give to. We order our life around. It's a, basically a fundamental understanding of who well, we want to join God in the renewal of all things. I share that with you because sometimes people want to know what's going on with the pastor. And so in a moment, Sarah's just going to invite us to some, some, give us a few invitations and what I wanted to leave us with for a moment, or what I was hoping at least, and what's burning in my heart, I'll just share that, is when I'm like, this is why my wife and I think through the lens or we try our best when we're being faithful to realize this greater thing we're a part of is we want to expend our energy, and in this instance, example, we're talking about money, is spend our money in a way that is reflective of the fact that we are a part of this story of God putting the world back together. So if this is the most important thing, seeking first the kingdom, then our happiness and our jobs and our well-being and our safety, these things aren't separate. It's just when we put God and his project first, all those things will be added unto you. That's a Bible verse, seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added unto you. It'll all make sense and fall into its proper place. And so when we believe this is what's happening in the world, there's no time for YouTube comments and there's no time for standing on the sidelines just endlessly critiquing and not getting in the game. And there's no time for sitting on the couch and not stepping in with the gifts that you've been given for the sake of the kingdom. And there's no time to hoard your money. Because there's people around who are hurting. Because there's a project and a community at Sanctuary Church that we're a part of, that we're seeing the kingdom come to earth in. And so the question of moving from dabbling devotion for me, as I'm even just listening again, knowing what was going to say hearing it again, I'm like, oh, you know, like my wife's sitting right here. We're going to have a real honest conversation. I was just thinking, like, we just sold our house. You know, it's a good market to sell your house a bunch of money. We should probably ask some questions about not just how to invest into our own personal future, but maybe God's inviting us to something in the kingdom. This is a really funny conversation to have with my wife right here in the middle of the service. (laughs) She's sweating. (laughs) Right, but I just want to be really honest. Like, I'm hearing these words right now. This is like active. This isn't a show. Like, we're hearing, I'm hearing this. I'm going, God, yeah, you're right. I get to join you in, in bringing heaven to earth with this group of people. God, what are you inviting us to now? What's the next step for us? What's the next step for us, Sarah?
1: All right. I think the next step for us is to get in the wheelbarrow and to think about what that is for each of us when we think about our finances. So when we look at the early church, we can easily see God is inviting them through their actions to participate in the expansion of his kingdom we believe that God's spirit is still at work, that he still calls and invites us into participating with him in the work that he wants to do. And so as we move into year seven in the life of this church, we actually believe that God is still inviting his church to participate with him in the expansion of his kingdom through our actions to get in the wheelbarrow together. And so we want to ask you if you will take a step of faith with us today. And so for, there's a couple of different invitations that we want to make. One is for all of us, just some questions for any of us to wrestle with this morning. When we think about our finances, we don't like to talk about money and we don't like to talk about money in church, but if Jesus is Lord of our lives and if his kingdom is the priority, we have to. Because every single area of our life To come under the Lordship of Jesus. And so, some questions for all of us to wrestle with this morning. As you look at how you spend your money, what you do with the things that you have, are there any ways that your financial praxis doesn't reflect your belief in the gospel of Jesus or your devotion to his kingdom? Or are there any ways that your use of your funds, your finances, doesn't actually reflect the value of generosity if that's a value that you hold have you gotten in the wheelbarrow to exercise faith in that belief so just a question for all of us and are there any ways that god might be asking you just like the early church kind of reorganized their life to reorganize how you use your money is there something that god is asking you to do this morning so that's for all of us to think about We also have a specific invitation for the Sanctuary family. And as Andrew kind of mentioned, we have some family business to talk about this morning. And so this is not for those of you who are new or visiting. This is specifically for those of you who are already devoted to the work of the kingdom through the ministry of this church. Or maybe you're new to Sanctuary, but you've been wanting to devote yourselves more fully to the work of the kingdom through Sanctuary. And so we wanted to just give you a really practical and tangible invitation this morning. As we look ahead to year seven in the life of Sanctuary Church, we have a sense that there's some specific ways that God is asking us to press further and deeper into the work that he's called us to do. We believe that God is inviting sanctuary, has been for six years, but is continuing to invite us to be part of the expansion and growth of his kingdom in Providence. And so we celebrate everything that's happened in the last 6 years and the last year, but we're not satisfied. We're not done. The kingdom isn't fully here. We the kingdom is still coming. We still need to participate with God in the work that he is doing. And so, we believe that there's work that God wants to do specifically through Sanctuary Church in Providence. So we believe God wants to grow his kingdom through our children and family ministries here at Sanctuary. We believe that there are kids and parents who don't know Jesus yet, or who don't have a spiritual home, and that we actually need to make room for them here at Sanctuary, and literally, we need to make more space for them. Parents, you know that our kids' space is crowded, and we have an opportunity to expand in some additional space in this building, to invest in some more rental space. And we believe that God is inviting us to do that this year. We believe that God wants to grow his kingdom through a church that is being birthed on the east side out of this community. We believe that God wants to grow his kingdom through new home groups that are gonna be planted in areas where we don't have ministry currently. We believe that there are people that God wants to introduce himself to through us that don't know him yet. We believe that there are needs that are currently unmet that God wants to meet through this church community. And so friends, if you believe that along with us, we want to invite you to get in the wheelbarrow with us this year. We wanna acknowledge that just the practical realities that if we believe we need to expand some of our ministry so that the kingdom of God can expand, that our financial needs are going to expand as well. And so as we head into a new fiscal year on July 1st, we actually think it's gonna take an additional $50,000 annually to be faithful to the call that God's put on this church. This isn't like a one-time campaign. This is actually asking the family to invest further and deeper in an ongoing way over the next several years. And so in um, the pockets in your pews, we have some cards. If you are like part of the sanctuary family, we wanted to encourage you to pull those out. It says an invitation at the top. And there are three things we're inviting you to consider. The first is to make a recurring commitment to give to the work of the Lord if you've never made a commitment? If you're someone who gives more spontaneously, would you consider making a commitment? Secondly, if you give regularly, would you consider if there are any ways that you could increase your giving in the coming years? And then lastly, as Andrew was talking about practicing a tithe, some of you may be feeling compelled to reorder your praxis in a way that you practice giving 10% of your income. And so in a moment, when we come to the communion table, we're going to have some baskets up here. If you know what God's inviting you to and you want to go ahead and write it down and put it in the basket, that would be fantastic. Some of you may need to take it home, pray about it, talk with your spouse, and we'll have opportunities over the next few weeks. But church, thank you for being willing to consider how God might be inviting you and all of us to exercise generosity and be part of the work that God wants to do in Providence this year. So as we close, we're going to come to the table.
0: This uh, is an opportunity um, for us not only to take part in Christ's body broken and blood poured out, but to be reminded the language that Paul uses that we are the body of Christ we are the temple we are the place where god seeks to reside his people not a building not in a religious system but in a people and so when we come forward first and foremost the bread and the cup are about christ's body broken and blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the world the God of the universe laying himself down for us. But then also, there's something that I love to highlight from time to time, which is we, the body of Christ, are invited in response to God's grace and love and generosity towards us. We are invited to break ourselves open as the body of Christ and to pour ourselves out as the body of Christ, as, as the representatives of Jesus in flesh and blood here on so I invite us as we come and take the bread and the cup to consider the grace and peace of Jesus, that there's nothing you could ever do and make Jesus like, love you less. There's nothing you could ever do that would take away his forgiveness and peace and presence with invitation to that love and grace and peace. We get to pour ourselves out and to further this great mission that is before us. So if you are making a commitment today, we're just gonna have these baskets up front and you can drop them off here. Um, and as you come and take the bread and the cup, these servers are gonna say, Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for you. As you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, may you be reminded of God's goodness and love for you. You're gonna come up the center aisle in two rows, take the bread, circle back, and we're just gonna close with a song. We'll close with one more song together. If you're here and you wanna receive prayer, maybe there's something just happening in your life, whether anything we talked about triggered it or not, you just need to receive a blessing this morning. I encourage you, line up in this line and there'll be some people over here who'd love to pray with you. Maybe for you, um, like hearing all this talk of, 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 of laying down your resources, of giving to something bigger than yourself, of getting in the game and getting in the fight. Maybe for you today, that, that actually means I'm going to say yes to Jesus. And maybe for you, that lordship is a step in baptism. And again, come forward and let someone know here that you want to make that step. So.
1: Lord, thank you so much for your self-giving love. Thank you that you poured yourself out for us. And God, would you take our lives, and Lord, we surrender our lives to you. We surrender every corner of our lives to you to be used for your purposes. Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, would you remind us of your love? And Lord, would you break us? for your kingdom and for the sake of the world that needs you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as you feel it.